0: Father, we thank you that you you are here with us, that you are not distant and far away, but you are here and very near to us. We thank you for the ways that we've experienced that already this morning, Lord, through the greetings and hugs of one another, Lord, through our singing and through music, And God, we thank you that you have given us your word so that we can hear and come to know in our minds and our hearts uh, your truth for us and the way of life that you call us to live. So, Lord, make us good listeners of your word today and not just people who listen, but who hear it and who do it. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So as Paul writes his his letters very often uh, he will take the first half of his letters, or the first sections of his letters, and really talk about some in-depth theology. Uh, sometimes some difficult things for us to get our minds around. And then he'll take the next half of his letter, and he'll he'll talk about how everything that he said in the first half of that letter, um, how it works its way out in our daily lives. And that's very true of the book of Ephesians. In the first half of the book, um, he's talking about some very big concepts, uh, talking about you know these heavenly places and these heavenly realities. And how we have been seated with Christ now in the heavenly places, and it's a bit hard for us to to get our minds around and to grab onto, but the next half of the book of Ephesians, Paul then talks about what that looks like. And our calling as as followers of Jesus is to to live according to these heavenly realities that Paul talks about in the first half of his letter. And last week we talked about how those heavenly realities have, have been disrupted by this great rupture called sin. And so we talked about three ways in which our, um, uh, those heavenly realities have uh, been separated. And so we talked about that in three ways. That God's plan, his heavenly reality for us to experience God with us um, has become me versus God. And our calling as followers of Christ is to live according to that original reality, God with us. We were also designed to live together, me and you. Uh, And we as followers of Christ are to seek to live instead. Uh, But because of sin, we have this us versus them reality that comes to bear in our lives and in our world. And we are to resist that and to continue to seek out living this me and you reality. And then we also talked about uh, the new self and the old self. That not only are we us versus God and sometimes us versus them, uh, but there's also an inner battle going on inside. There is the old self and the new self. And we live this tension of me versus me. The flesh and the spirit that are both alive in us. And God calls us to live as a single I. A person uh, before him, this uh, new self that God has, has made for us to be in Christ. And so this second half of the book of Ephesians describes what it look like looks like to live according to this God with us, me and you, and this I reality. And so we have these very practical instructions about what life in Christ looks like. And so the second half of Ephesians, if you read through them, you'll know uh, that he tells us how we are to live in relationship with one another in the church, um, how we're called to live holy lives in the world, uh, how we're called to live as, as parents and as children and um, as co-workers and as husbands and wives. All of these different relationships that we experience in our lives, Paul gives instructions about what those are to look like so that we can live according According to these heavenly realities that God has designed for us. Today we're going to look at the first part of Ephesians chapter 4, and I would encourage you to take your Bibles or to grab the Bible in the pew in front of you. We're going to be looking at the first 16 verses of Ephesians chapter 4 today. And in these verses in particular, Paul is, is talking specifically how the church functions together as, as a community. And what he's going to tell us is that um, we are called to, to maturity so that we can reflect Christ together in the world. He calls us to maturity as a whole body so that we can reflect Christ together in the world. And that's one of the main ideas of the sermon today is that together, all of us together as one body reflect Christ in the world. Of course, we do do that as individual people. We, we do try to live like Christ and to reflect him in our own lives. But none of us can reflect of all of who Christ is by ourselves. Jesus, the way he lived, he lived like each one of us when we are at our very best, okay? And you and I are very rarely at our very best, right? And not only that is I, not only am I very rarely at my very best, but I certainly can't be your very best, right? We, we all have our own very best, and Jesus lived according, uh, the way he lived, it was as if he was always living according to the very best of who we are as human beings, when we live out the unique life that God has called us to live, when each one of us live out that unique life that God has called us to live, and then when we come together as the body of Christ, it's each of us living out our unique gifts in our unique perspectives, it is then that we reflect him most clearly together. We are better together at reflecting Christ to the world. Are you with me? So in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says this, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. How does Paul describe our calling here in the book of Ephesians? We talked about this a few times during this series The way that Paul describes our calling as the church is that the church is to be a demonstration of God's plan and purpose for the world. Our life together as a community is a demonstration. We are exhibit A of God's plan and purpose for the world. In chapter 1, Paul said that one day all things in heaven and on earth are going to come together in unity under the authority of Christ. And is creation there yet? Has all of heaven and earth come under the authority of Christ? No. But the church, the church is the place where we are seeking to live that out right now. And so as we do that, we then demonstrate God's plan and purpose for the end of all things. And so Paul tells us that the church manifests, demonstrates the wisdom and plan of God in the world. And right now he is at work to bring all things in heaven and on earth under his authority. That's our calling now. How do we live out that calling? Paul says, live a life worthy of this calling that you have received. If we are going to be a demonstration to the world of God's eternal plan and purpose, what do we need to do? I think if it was up to us, we would try to all get together and come up with some really impressive things that would get people's attention. Let's build a really big church. Let's fight for justice. Let's gain political power. If we are going to be a demonstration to the world, then the church should be doing lots of stuff that gets the world's attention. But here's what Paul says about how we should live out this calling that we have received be completely humble and gentle, be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. The first way that Paul says that we are to live out this high calling of being a demonstration to the world of God's final plan and purpose is in the very faithful and everyday quiet and mundane relationships that we share with one another. Paul is telling us that if we're going to be a demonstration to the world, if God is going to use us as visible witnesses to his salvation, then we need to focus first on what's going on in the me and you relationships here in our church and in our relationships with our families. As followers of Jesus, are we demonstrating in our own lives the characteristics of Jesus' own life in our relationships with each other? Are we being patient with one another? Are we gentle? Are we building one another up in love? Is our community known for being a people who knows how to forgive one another's faults as Christ forgave us? Is that what we are known for? Those things that I mentioned earlier, building big churches, gaining political influence, fighting for justice, they all have their time in their place. But if we aren't living out the gospel amongst ourselves, if the life of Jesus is not evident in our community, then all of those efforts to do those bigger things uh, will lose all of their credibility if we do them. The gospel is compelling to the world when they see a community of people living it out. And if we aren't living it, then the world will wonder, what the, what's the point anyways? There's all kinds of communities trying to do big and impressive things. I mean, just go to Disney World. You know? like we, we can't compete with big and impressive Disney World as the church. That's not our calling to do. You know, There's lots of communities that are seeking political power and influence. That's not unique. There's lots of communities that are seeking to fight for justice. That's not unique. What makes the church different? is that we seek to do all that we do by being patient and humble and gentle and being more concerned with the well-being of the other than with our own, who seek to express agape love. We bear with one another in love. That is what makes the church community entirely different than any other community that's out there. I love these two verses here. Urge, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because it's something that everyone can do. You don't have to be a pastor or a leader or someone who has a lot of influence. You don't have to be rich and you don't have to be poor to do this. Paul is in prison and he's seeking to do this. A person that the world didn't notice. He was uh, uh, an outsider in the world. Nobody noticed him. He was invisible to the world. But he was seeking to live a patient and humble and gentle life with other people. He was seeking to express agape love in everything that he did. All of us, with God's help, can learn to live faithfully to the calling we have received In these relationships with one another, it doesn't cost us a single thing. It doesn't cost us a dime. It doesn't require any education. It simply requires us to submit to Jesus and commit ourselves wholeheartedly to one another. That's all it takes. Now, in the rest of this section, Paul talks about, uh, starting in verse 3 and moving through verse 16, Paul talks about the tension that every culture and every community has to wrestle with between unity and diversity. Every country, every culture, every community has different ways of expressing this dynamic between unity and diversity. Unity, how are we all the same? How do we all agree? What do we all hold in common? And at the same time, every community must have space for individuals to be individuals, to be unique for each individual's uniqueness and difference to have a voice at the table and to make a contribution. In every culture, every country, every community, it tends to emphasize or celebrate either unity over diversity or diversity over unity. The collective group or the individual. In America, which one of these two do we celebrate? The individual, right? And This is one of the gifts that America gave to the world that... Each person has the right, the individual, inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We have celebrated the individual. Go to a place like China, and there's a celebration of unity, of sameness. The sameness often at the expense of the individual. And the church, as a human community, also has to wrestle with these two dynamics as well. Unity and diversity. And here, Paul tells us how we do that. How we both have this expression of real unity that's been created by God, but how each individual has a part to play in their own uniqueness and diversity. So let's look at verses three through seven. Paul says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one, but to each one, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Where does Paul start? With unity or diversity? Unity, right? Those first few verses, uh, Paul's favorite word there is one. He says it seven times. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. When we become, when we become follow, a follower of Jesus, we participate in one reality that is bigger than ourselves. We become part of one kingdom because there is one Lord. We become children of one Father because there is only one God and Father. We each have share of one hope, one salvation that God has given to us. All of us may have come to Jesus in our own way, but we all participate in this one giving of grace that God has given to us. Paul begins with unity, and he tells us that that, that unity that we share in Christ, that it already exists, it's not something that we, don't, that we can create it's not something that any uh, a church program can make happen. The only thing that we can do is we can recognize and acknowledge that the unity is there, and we can seek to participate in it and seek to live faithfully to that unity that God has created. And in verse 7, Paul moves to talk about diversity. One body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then in verse 7, he says, but to each one of us. Grace has been given. Paul tells us that our unity together doesn't mean that all of us should be the same. Unity is not the same thing as uniformity. God sees us each as individuals. God has given us each unique personalities and perspectives and gifts that are necessary for us to reflect Christ together in the world. And each of us has a unique role to play in the life of the church. To each one, to every individual, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So Paul is beginning to talk here about what a healthy and mature local church looks like. And what is essential is for us to live according to this unity that we have and to make every effort to keep this unity that God has given. But for each of us to live out our diverse roles and our diverse perspectives in the life of that church. Each one of us is given a measure of God's grace. Usually when we think about grace, we think about God's gift of salvation he has saved me from my sins I do not earn that uh, that salvation but God by his grace gives that to me and of course that's true about grace but the Bible uses grace also in another way to not only talk about that moment of salvation that we experience but also a grace for good work a grace for ministry Paul talks about in the book of Ephesians that his ministry to the Gentiles was a gift of grace that God gave to him that he has received. And I think very often we see our our ministry to Christ as an offering to him, as a gift to him, and of course it is. But even before that, we must receive that ability or that ministry as a gift of grace. That God has invited me, has invited you to participate in one way or another in his plan and work for the world. And so even your ministry that you do is grace. So a healthy church is a church where every member knows that grace has been extended to him or to her. Grace for salvation and grace for good work. So in the church, which is more important, unity or diversity? Both. Right, They're both essential. We are unified as one body and one spirit. We all have one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father. We're all part of one family. And at the same time, our uniqueness as individual people is required in order for that unity to be fully expressed and demonstrated to the world. We are one body with many parts. And as each part does its work, the whole, the one body, will be healthy. Verses 8 through 10, 9 through 10, I'm sorry, Paul, no, it is 8 through 10, Paul then gives this kind of um, parenthetical statement about the ascension of Jesus, and I want to talk about that for a little bit. Verse 8, this is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean? except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. This is, does anybody else want to come up here and preach this part? <laughs> um, here Paul is talking about the ascension of Jesus. And every year as a church, uh, we celebrate certain events in the life of Jesus. At Christmas, we celebrate his birth. Good Friday, we remember and celebrate his death. At Easter, we remember and celebrate his resurrection. And we observe these different times and these unique uh, ways throughout the year because uh, all of these events, these moments in the life of Jesus deserve our special attention and our reflection. And I, I suspect this morning, if I were to take the microphone around the room, and ask you, you know, what does the birth of Jesus mean? That you could probably speak for a couple of minutes at least about what the birth of Jesus means. What does the resurrection mean? You could probably talk for a couple of minutes about what the resurrection means. But I wonder if anyone is willing to come and talk about what the ascension means. It's not really something that we talk about, and we don't typically have a day out of the year where we remember the ascension of jesus although there are some traditions who do have ascension sunday where they remember the ascension of christ so it's not something that we've talked we talk about a lot and so i think that that's why these three verses sound so odd to our ears because we don't really have anything to hold on to what is paul talking about here when he talks about the ascension the new testament actually talks about the ascension quite a lot In fact, the most quoted Old Testament verse in the entire New Testament is Psalm 110, verse 1, which says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And they use that verse to talk about the ascension of Jesus. The ascension of Jesus is when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. And this is really important to remember. I said this before, I'm saying it now, and I will no doubt say it again. Because if we don't understand this, we won't understand much of the New Testament. We certainly won't understand Ephesians, and we definitely will not understand the book of Revelation. Heaven, or as Paul says in Ephesians, the heavenly places is not up there and far away. That is not the way the biblical writers understood heaven. Heaven. The heavenly places are all around us, but we can't see them with our physical eyes. The heavenly places are all around us, but we can't see it with our physical eyes. One of my favorite stories, I'm sure I've already told this four or five times before, our daughter Gloria was three or four years old. We had just finished vacation Bible school at our church over the last, for the last week. It was a, a really big event at our previous church. And I was sitting with Gloria, reading her a bedtime story, and she said, Daddy, heaven is in the sky. And I said, yes, glory heaven is in the sky, but heaven is actually anywhere that God is, and so heaven is all around us. We just can't see it with our eyes. And she said, yeah, but sometimes you can see it at VBS. <laughs> it's so true. Every once in a while, we have a glimpse of God's presence in a real and more present way. And we can begin to see it with our eyes. The heavenly places are near to us now and always. They are here. Ephesians tells us that the rulers and authority of the heavenly, rulers and authorities of the heavenly places, they are even watching us right now. The church has a heavenly audience. The ascension, then, is the moment in the life of Jesus where he takes his rightful place as the ruler of the universe in the heavenly places, not a place up there and far away, but a place right here and very near. And so this is why Paul says that the ascension enables Jesus to fill the whole universe. The one who descended, that is, who came in the flesh, is the very one who ascended. Why? So that he could fill the whole universe. Jesus' entrance into the heavenly places enabled him to be with us always. Through the ascension of Jesus, the presence of Jesus is no longer limited to a time in a particular place. His presence is available to us anywhere and everywhere. Because of the ascension into the heavenly places which are all around us, it means we don't have to go to Jerusalem to be with him. We can experience his presence with us now in your home, at work, as you take a walk, as you spend time with your children. That is the significance of the ascension, that you and I have access to the ruler of the universe at any time and anywhere. So Paul then, after this parenthetical statement, he then describes these five ministry roles and responsibilities that are essential. These very diverse ministry roles that are essential to the building up of the church. Verse 11, it was he, that is the ascended Christ, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. First thing that I want to to say about these five ministry roles is that Jesus fulfilled each of them perfectly. These are leadership and ministry roles that Jesus himself played out. Apostle, which simply means a sent one, someone who is sent on a mission. Was Jesus an apostle? Yeah, sent by the Father into the world to uh, rescue the world from sin and death. Prophet, a prophet is someone who speaks God's word to people at the right time in order to challenge people to faithfulness, even when it's difficult and challenges people. Did Jesus do that? Yes, he did. He was definitely a prophet. An evangelist. An evangelist is someone who speaks the good news, who tells the good news to those who don't know it and invites them and recruits them into a new family. Did Jesus do that? You bet he did. Shepherd. Jesus is what? The good shepherd. He had compassion on people, and he guided and directed his disciples. Teacher. Was he a good teacher? The best the world has ever seen. All five of these ministries that are described here are expressions of the way that Jesus himself led. Jesus was the greatest apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher that the world has ever known. And it was through these five ministry roles that Jesus established his church and formed his community And what Paul is saying here as he talks about Jesus ascending so that he could fill the whole universe is that Jesus is now everywhere empowering the church to continue the work in the way and manner that he did. And the work that he does through us, the work that he does through our church, it is his work, right? It's not something we can brag about. It's not Broadway Christian Church's work. We cannot take credit for it. He is the one who receives glory for any work that is done in us and through us. But I want to take a bit of time to talk about these unique ministry roles that Jesus fulfilled. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher. There's a couple of different ways that we can think about or talk about these roles. One of them is to think of them as titles or positions of authority in the church. People who have the title, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, or teacher, and they exercise that authority in one way or another because they have that position. But there's another way to think about these five unique roles that I think are more in line with what Paul has in mind here, and that these five roles are not simply titles or positions that people hold, but they are each different expressions of the ministry of Jesus that the church continues to live out and that the church still needs. Now, let me be clear. I do not think that the church continues to have apostles that have the same kind of authority as the 12 did. And I don't believe that there are still prophets today, today who carry the same kind of authority as Isaiah or Jeremiah did in their day. And there are some individuals and in churches who give those titles to people, and I think that that often leads to unhealthy, uh, unhealthy things in their communities. But All five of those expressions of Jesus' ministry, all five of those charismas of the leadership of Jesus are still necessary in the life of the church today. And so even if we don't go around giving people, you know, the title, this is Prophet Pete here, there are still people in the church who play a prophetic-type role in the church. There are people who speak clear words at an apt Time to challenge the church and to make church sure that the church remains faithful. So, while there may not also be like an Apostle Andrea, there are people in the church who play an apostolic kind of role. That is, people who are sent by the church on a particular mission, who are sent to forge new ground for the gospel. Do you understand the distinction that I'm making there? These are each types of expressions of the leadership of Jesus that the church continues to need, each one of these expressions, if it's going to grow and to be healthy. The church continues to need the energy of apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds to be healthy and whole and mature. And so I want to spend a little bit of time uh, teaching a little bit about these five different roles and for you to begin to ask the question, uh, which of these five are in me? Uh, is there an apostle or a prophet or evangelist or a shepherd or a teacher in, in me? So as I describe these, maybe you can be considering that. So I have this picture here. This is the circle represents you know, the, the, the whole church, and Jesus is there at the center. And, the Jesus, and Jesus then sends his spirit into the world, and he establishes these five ministry roles. And so let's talk about what's, what, how each of these roles play themselves out. First, the apostles. An apostle, the qualities of an apostle is they are like entrepreneurs or pioneers or innovators. Okay, and the task that they have is extending the church into new contexts, so uh, church planting or different kind of ministry experiments. And so if we think about some present-day examples, we think about missions agencies, or perhaps our GO team here at Broadway can be seen as apostolic-type people who send people uh, to do God's work, and certainly church planters would be those kinds of people as well. I was uh, doing some research this week, and this kind of person is so desperately needed if we want to see new people come to Christ. Uh, The evidence is clear that if there is a church that is... um, under five years old, like a new church that has just started under five years old, that about 75% of the people who are a part of that church were not going to a church before that church started. So either they are brand new believers or maybe they left the church and have come back as a part of that church. So a church under five years, uh, under five years old, 75% of those people um, are, probably were not in a church uh, before. The reverse, unfortunately, is also true. Churches that are over 15 years old, um, 80 to 90 percent, any new people that come to their church, 80 to 90 percent of them are people who are simply coming from another church to this other church, simply transferring from one church to another. So the apostolic energy, the charisma, the the giftings of an apostle to go and to establish a new community of people, which does things perhaps a little bit differently than an established church does, creates possibilities for new people to come to Christ. So we still need this apostolic energy. Even if we don't give people a title apostle, we need this kind of charisma if the church is going to be healthy and the church is going to grow. Prophets. The Spirit uh, empowers prophets. These are people who have courage, who lack the fear of man, and who have discernment, who are able to see and discern the times and to speak a word into it. So they speak the word of God. Uh, they disrupt the status quo, and they call the church to faithfulness. Present-day examples. We think of artists. Artists or organizations that advocate for justice and for the poor, Martin Luther King Jr. would certainly be an example of a modern-day prophet. We have evangelists. These are people who love non-believers who simply desire to see people who do not know Jesus come to know Jesus, and they are gifted communicators. They have the task of engaging with non believers, of getting to know them, and then communicating the good news. And they have this ability to, to like close the deal. Uh, when I witness to people, and I enjoy doing evangelism, but I have, an, I have a difficult time uh, moving them from thinking about the gospel and presenting them the gospel in some way to actually making them make a decision. And, but evangelists, those who are evangelists, have that ability to ask those questions and to stir something, something in people that causes them to say, yes, this is what, what I want. Present-day examples, of course, Billy Graham, uh, the Campus Crusade movement, uh, Revive Indiana that we experienced here three or four years ago. Uh, these are all present-day examples of evangelists and the gifts that they are to the church. We have shepherds or pastors qualities compassion vision discernment their tasks are administration and leadership and pastoral care and present-day examples are pastors we also have teachers they have the qualities of wisdom and insight into god's word they have the task of teaching the Word and also discerning culture. How does, how does the, the, the Word of God then connect to our culture, connect to where people are? And they, of course, present-day examples would be preachers and teachers. So it's a very quick review of these five different roles, uh, five different charismas that I think are still important in the life of the church today. Over time... I think we've limited the leadership expressions in the church to which of these two? Which ones do we like the most in the church? Pastors and teachers, right? Okay, I like that. That's good for me because I'm definitely a pastor. I like that. Who gets paid in our churches? Pastors and teachers. I like that. That's good for me. But there's some things that are missing, too. Some things that are missing in our life as a church. We need apostles who are willing to go and to take risks and to forge new ground for the gospel. We need prophets who are willing to challenge, to make sure that we are being faithful as a church. So what I want to suggest is that within this congregation, there are people who have been given gifts and perspectives and life experiences who are equipped in one way or another to express um, all five of these different roles. And I could embarrass some people today, but I I don't— Should I do that? Should I embarrass people? Okay, I will. I'll embarrass people. So we think about apostles, people who have this desire for the gospel to be— lived out or expressed in new communities. Think of Matthew Edwards, Eldon Clausen, Steve Snyder. Okay, these are, are missionary people who have a heart to see God's uh, gospel go to new, to new places. Prophets. Um, if you spend five minutes talking to Alex Graham about spiritual things and you don't feel uncomfortable, then you're not listening. The man has been given the gift of speaking hard and challenging words. Evangelists, Otto and Dana and Deb, those who are part of the, the Revive team, these are people who have a heart for uh, seeing people come to know Christ. Pastors, you can skip that one. You guys see enough of us already. There's teachers like Bill Ragle and those of you who are teaching in small groups. These are all expressions, whether or not you have a title or not, these are people who are, are living out these expressions of Jesus' life and ministry. Does that make sense to you? And I think we need to, to pay attention. I guess I'm talking to our elders here. <laughs> pay attention to the ways that some of these other ministry expressions um, are not being recognized and that we are not fanning the flames of some of these other expressions of Jesus' Jesus's ministry that we need to. These five expressions of his leadership are, are very different, right? They're very diverse, but they all find their unity in the life of this one man, Jesus. We, and we are called to be what? His body, the body of Christ. So verses 12 through 13, that these leaders are given to prepare God's people for works of service, So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. When the diverse expressions of the body of Christ are committed to functioning together, it brings growth and unity. When these different diversities function together, we come to a deeper knowledge of Jesus. There is some Jesus grace that's been given to you that hasn't been given to me. And when I experience it in you, I experience it in a, in, in a unique way. And I need you to be you so that God, in the way that God has made you, so that I can experience Jesus more fully, so that we as a community can experience Jesus more fully. Verses 15 through 16, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament. It grows and it builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This unity and diversity dynamic is expressed in these last two verses that we as one body grow up into him who is our one Lord Christ as each diverse part does its work. And here in this section, we end in the place where we started, in love. In order to keep the unity of the church, we are called to bear with one another in love. And as we express the diversity of the church, we build one another as each part does its work in in love. Would you pray with me? Our God in heaven, we thank you for the unique way that you have made the church. Lord, we we know that you have given us, uh, each of us, a different role to play. Father, we thank you that the unity that you have created, the salvation that you have given to us is, it's already there. It's already been created. We don't have to manufacture it. We don't have to come up with some program to make sure it happens. It's already there. We simply need to participate in it. So help us to see the ways that we can make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Lord, and I pray that we will in all things, in our relationships with one another, in the ways that we use our gifts, that in all things that we would do it in love. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.